Hello, Dennis. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the hostile work environment. How are things? Things are very well. I feel like when you say welcome to the hostile work environment, we should have like a whip sound or something. We should. (laughs) We'll work on that. I'll just edit that in. Yeah, yeah, totally. I I like it. Um, (laughs) How's it going? Oh, it has been an exhausting week. Yeah, you 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 were in trial this week. I had a week long trial, which is super exciting. It was After very exciting. Many it, years in house, you're back to doing trial work again. I'm back in the saddle, and it was it was so much fun. I really enjoy that kind of stuff, and it was so cool to be doing it again. And I, I'll just say, as as friend of Dennis, I can see a change in Dennis. Really? I, yeah, you're. You're like... Am I you're, glowing? You're, well, you're glowing. Do I have post-trial glow? You do. Post-trial glow. P, PTG? PTG. P- it's p- a thing. Pittig. Pittig. Um. <laughs> um, no, like seriously, like I can just tell, like talking about it with you this morning, you're super enthusiastic I'm about it. I'm very enthusiastic. It was a totally enjoyable experience. We've got a great team. Um, it was... Uh, you know, great client, great team, lots of fun. The only bad part is that it was a bench trial, which means no jury, just a judge. And the judge wants briefs instead of closing arguments. Uh, so you didn't get to do the closing. I didn't get to do the closing. And we have to brief the thing. And then it's going to take like two months before we get a decision. So here we all are like all full of post-trial glow. But there's no outcome yet. There's no outcome yet. Well, if you want, after we're done recording today, you can do your closing for me. And I'll just give you sour judge face the whole time. Oh, that would be good. That would that would that would that provide some closure maybe <laughs> sour judge face is a thing it, no I know it's, it's kind of like know it's RBF but I mean it, they just sit there and like glower at you no matter what you're doing yeah no whether they agree with you or disagree with you they just don't want to you know yeah tip their hand at all it's so intimidating and it, it's funny you know I it's been twenty years but you put me in front of a judge and I still feel like a first year associate oh every time. I mean, it's been it's been a long time, time for me, and I have no intention of doing that again. But every time I was in front of a judge, no matter how experienced I was, yeah, I, I would just feel like I'm about to get dressed down. I feel like I'm back in my first day of law school, getting it's called so on true. in class. Yeah, which is like, why they do that in law school. It's why they do and that call in law on you in class you to get you ready to for it. it. I'm like, it's Professor White, and he's going to ask me about why somebody breached a contract for the purchase of Italian air conditioner parts. That was my first day of law school. Oh, really? Yeah, Italian air conditioner parts. Okay, I mine was in property class. Yeah. I got called on for over 25 minutes on a hypothetical about monkeys. Monkeys? Monkeys. And monkeys then, in property class? Were they the property, or was it about monkeys owning property? The former. No, seriously, like it was all about... The like, monkeys were property. Well, if you're on a deserted island, yeah, and you have a monkey and you can boss the monkey around, do you own the monkey? Uh, this was the hypothetical. I'm not kidding. This was the hypothetical. This was the hypothetical. Yeah. And I mean, what would you say, Dennis? Would you do you own the monkey? You boss the monkey around? No. You exert control over the monkey? Not at all. Monkeys are people. Monkeys are people. What I, if it, I, 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 it what depends if it on a, whether, it depends on whether the island allows slavery. There's no, there's nobody else on the island. It's deserted. Then I guess you get to decide whether or not you know monkeys can be your little monkey butler slaves. Right. What happens if the monkey becomes a gigantic ape, and you can't boss it around anymore? Do you maybe, still maybe, own it? Maybe the ape owns you. 
that is literally something I said to my professor on the very first day of law school class. Really? Yes. It was all about the nature of society and property and that you cannot have a concept of property without other people there to judge whether you own it or not. Oh, very So in the end, it was all an exercise about, you know, what are the qualities of property? There were so often on a tangent here, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, that, that, that know, was really fascinating. You know, but it's it like, yet yeah, exerting control over something is certainly a quality of, of, of owning property, right? So it started with the dog. Like you find a dog on the street. Do you own the dog? You take it home with you. You feed it. Well, I guess you kind of own the dog. Well, the, the the consensus was no, but then what happens after 30 days and nobody's claimed the dog or 60 days or 90 days, right? So then time was another component that we talked about, oh. right? Exerting control and time. And then, then there's this question of, well, what happens if the circumstances change and like you can't exert those things over, like, does that, does it cease to be your property, right? Like, how does property factor into all of that when there's nobody else around to judge whether you own it or not? Who cares? Wow. It was a fascinating opening, but I was the guy out of 80 people who got called on. And here's the best part. You know why, though? Well, he went alphabetically. Exactly. And I was third alphabetically. And there were two people who had like two minute long Socratic back and forth. And then then he called on me. I was third alphabetically. But here's the best part of that story. Okay. After the class was over, I went outside and... Obviously, we left the classroom, and there's two people yelling outside the classroom. Where's monkey guy? Need to find monkey guy or gal. Monkey guy or gal. Where's where's monkey guy or gal? And I like like sheepishly like I'm like oh it's me like I raised my hand like went up and talked to them and they're like hi I'm so and so I'm a two L and I'm so and so I'm a three L. I was monkey guy last year. (laughs) And I was monkey guy two years ago. No way. Way, yeah. So, you know, we didn't stay in close touch. I don't even remember their names anymore. But uh, it was an identifying feature of Professor Becker's 1L property class. Is that, that somebody was going to be monkey Somebody person. was always the monkey hypo Guy person. or gal. Yeah. So did you then come back the next two years to introduce yourself to monkey yes. guy or gal? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It was fun. It was yeah. a neat thing. It was a neat thing, though. I'll tell you, first class, first day, 25 minutes on the hot seat in front of 80 oh, other man. classmates. Yeah, no, totally. I was sweating like I've never sweated before. Well, my story, I'll try to make it short. It was contracts class. It was Professor J.J. White, who's like this contracts guru. And he was, we all before the class had to read some case about air conditioner parts in Italy and no none of us had ever read a case before so nobody knew how to read a case and he went through the room calling on people and all of us were just like utter idiots because we don't you know and well, he's you're not used to that you're not this, used to Socratic no, method you've never done it before he, he in reality he's a nice guy but he was he plays this total John Houseman kind of character and he he just I'm really, just gonna pause like some future day we should just do a side episode all about our our law school stories of yeah. oh, being called totally. on class because i have like three or four more oh, man, not yeah. for today but another day like we should start. Oh, continue totally. please good idea but anyway so he goes around the class and calls on like five or six people on one of them we all just kind of like make idiots of ourselves and then he calls on this one guy who was older than everybody else but sitting with all the students and calls on him and he gives like this five minute soliloquy that's just utterly brilliant wow and all of us look at him and go like 
oh my God, who is this guy? And Professor White's just like, oh, thanks, Martin. Good answer. And moves on. We're all like, Martin. We, we just hated this guy. Of course instantly. you did. And it turns out Martin was, I went to school in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Martin was a townie from Ann Arbor. <laughs> he had audited the class for five years. Oh. And they finally let him into law school. Oh, so now he's in it as a real, okay. Now this is his as first like class actual, as a like, real student and not just auditing and hanging out. Anyway, it turns out Martin is a great guy and became one of my best friends in law school. Very cool. Even though we all wanted to strangle him well, after yeah. the first day of class. I totally get that. Yeah. We should probably move on. We should. Do we want to talk about employment things? Um, and stuff. And stuff. Stuff. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, so I've got a question for you. Fire away. I, now, just just to say again, like, I have not told Dennis at all what we're going to be talking about in no, this first segment No, we never... Today. Don't think for a second we prepare this show, because we don't. So I know that you love music. I do. But I have a question for you. I think I know the answer. Yeah. Do you love musical theater? I kind of do love musical do theater. Do you? I never got that. I never knew that. Really? I What's do your love musical, musical theater. My favorite musical would have to be... God, that's a hard one. Um, gosh, chess would be high on. I love list. chess. That's definitely in my top three or four. Yeah, all, all music by ABBA. Great, great musical. Yeah, that never I, really got I, got I, the the full story and out there on Broadway like it should have. Um, yeah. Speaking of, I really enjoyed Mamma Mia. I know I never saw. I mean, I know obviously I know all the music, but I never actually saw Mamma Mia. The film version was god awful. Okay. But the, okay. the, yeah, I, I didn't see that either. I saw the stage production in Toronto many oh. years ago. It was it was absolute genius. Cool. I, okay, so I didn't know that. So when people today are talking about musical theater, what are they talking about? Hamilton. Hamilton. We're going to talk a little bit about Hamilton today. Really? Yes. That I did not expect. I bet you didn't. So little little story on Hamilton. So I went to college with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I knew that. You did know that because I, I kind of talk about it all the time, even though Lin probably would not remember me or know my name or recognize me walking down the street in any way, shape or form. So, but he, he wouldn't did, know you as monkey guy. Well, that was law school, not college. But he still, didn't go to law school. If word me. gets around. Word gets around. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, but he, he was cast in my housemate's uh, senior project of Jesus Christ Superstar as a freshman. We were seniors. Right. And he played Jesus, and he was amazing. You could already see kind of the potential, but nobody knew then where he'd land today. So that's just right. my little side story. But... When you think of Hamilton, what what are some of the things that make it? Have you seen it? I have actually not seen oh, Hamilton. Okay, I have. You know, I was in New York, tried to get tickets. I couldn't touch a ticket yeah. for under a thousand dollars per. Yeah, I saw and, it in its second week that it was open on Broadway, and still spent like two fifty a ticket. But and we're, we're nosebleed way in the back, but we did get to see it. And you know, it's coming to Portland now. We tried to log on and get tickets, and were completely foiled. Yeah, no, the the line, uh, the box office is across the street from my office, and I just watched the people at my window oh, in wow. line the day they went on sale, and most of them, it's, I it think, was did insanity. not end up getting tickets. Yeah, it's nuts. All right, so one of the things about Hamilton is that it has it takes a historical record of Hamilton and the people around him. Right. And it 
adds in a measure of diversity that is unusual when you're dealing with a story of all white guys. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's one of its distinguishing features. It is. So here's the question I have for you. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to read you something. This is real. This is real. So, yeah. So about two years ago, uh, Hamilton put out an open casting call. This was, this was in the news a couple years ago. Uh, Hamilton put out an open casting call, and it, it reads, Open casting call in New York City, Hamilton, an American musical. Hamilton is holding open auditions for singers who rap, seeking non-white, all caps, non-white men and women, ages 20s and 30s, for Broadway and upcoming tours, no prior theater experience necessary. Wow. Wow, indeed. Rarely do we see a job announcement or an ad for a job where race or color is called out specifically as a requirement. That's super rare. Now, you see that in theater at... And, and on TV and casting at some level, right? It's it's not going to be usual, for example, for a casting director to hire a white guy to play Martin Luther King Jr. Probably not. Right. And so... It depends on what level of historical accuracy the director's going for, right? Right. And then that becomes an artistic decision. Right. But as an artistic decision... The, the decision that they made with Hamilton was we literally don't want white people to be playing these roles, with the exception of one role, which wasn't in the casting uh, announcement, oh, really? which is the King of England is always cast as a white dude. Really? Always. Because he is the man. Because he's the man. Yeah. And there's, you got to have a white guy playing the man. Right. And otherwise, we have this diverse cast of generally non-white individuals performing all of these other roles that were historically white men. Right. It's part of the show, and also it's not part of the show, if that makes sense. Like, as somebody who has seen it... Yeah. Right? It's it's music that is reflecting a culture. I'm going to stereotype just a little bit here in saying this, right? There are not going to be as many straight white dudes out there. Straight has nothing to do with it. I don't know why I just said that. There's not going to be as many white dudes out there who rap as well as others. Vanilla Ice. Not going to be as many. <laughs> also, okay. so, also as good. So He is quite god-awful. Right. So, like, I say that, and yes, I am drawing on stereotypes and saying that, but there's also, a, a there's truth to this particular, at this level of the stereotype. Yeah, you're right? going to have, like, so you're in, pretty much going to have a cast consisting of Eminem, Marky Mark, and Vanilla Ice. Right. So as and you it's put going out, to blow. As you put out a casting call for a show like this, right, where that is an actual requirement of the roles that are being that are being performed and sung, there's yeah. going to be some self-selection here in terms of who gets cast if you're casting the most talented people. In this case, I actually think that in in many of those circumstances they're not going to be white. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. So why put that in a casting call? Why put that in a casting call? This got all sorts of media play about two years ago. Really? Of people criticizing Hamilton for doing this. I completely missed it. I, I think... I can think of two reasons. 
One is that, and we touched on this earlier, it is the artistic decision of the, and now my my limitation on on the play business is going to show itself, and you'll correct me, but is it the director whose artistic vision is achieved by the view of the cast, or is that the producer i really don't it can be any of them it can be any of them doesn't matter but if as an artistic quality they are saying we want to make a political or social statement by having non-white actors play historically white people then i can see that that would be a reason that you would just put out there up front like you know whites need not apply Uh, yeah and as as somebody who's looking for diversity and who who wants to support Hamilton and, and theater of this nature. Like, I have no problem with it right. at that level. Does the law have a problem with it? Well, and I was going to say the other reason. Oh, yeah, would, sorry. You had second reason. The other reason would be is that if you're casting for Alexander Hamilton or Benjamin Franklin or anybody else, and you're a person of color and you see a casting call for Ben Franklin, you're probably going to exclude yourself from even trying out. Unless you see something in there explicitly that says, "Oh, hey, by the way, well, we're we're cool with having you know non-white people playing Ben Franklin," which is different than what they did. Right. What they right. did is they said like, N- "Whites need not apply." Right. That, as that opposed is a to, different. we are looking for a diverse cast, and we aren't yeah. going to look at at the color of your skin when it comes to casting Ben right. Franklin or Alexander Hamilton. So it, that, it's a little bit of, of you know, uh, reverse of what you just said. But, all right, so here's here's what happened. After after there was a big brouhaha about yeah. this. A kerfuffle. Uh, kerfuffle. Um, the Hamilton producers rewrote the casting call and oh. issued a statement in response to the controversy. The producers of Hamilton regret the confusion that's arisen from the recent posting of an open call casting notice for the show. It is essential to the storytelling of Hamilton that the principal roles, which were written for non-white characters, excepting King George, be performed by non-white actors. This adheres to the accepted practice that certain characteristics in certain roles constitute a bona fide occupational qualification that is legal. F-O-Q. And this is where this conversation is going. This also follows in the tradition of many shows that call for race, ethnicity, or age-specific casting, whether it's The Color Purple or Porgy or Bess or Matilda. The casting will be amended to also include language we neglected to add, that is, we welcome people of all ethnicities to audition for Hamilton. So, with that statement... All ethnicities? Really? That's what it says. Now, I don't know how much credence you put into that, yeah, having I, seen what was already there. When I hear that, I'm thinking white folks need not apply. <laughs> Probably. Now, they used the BFOQ language, which I thought was fascinating when I when I kind of recalled this and, and researched it a bit this morning. Yeah. Is this a BFOQ? I think so. Okay. Tell me about that. So the whole idea of a BFOQ is that there are, it is generally frowned upon in the law to discriminate on on the basis of race, national origin, color, sex, religion, all that kind of stuff, right? But every now and then there's a particular job that might require somebody to be of a particular age, sex, race, color, 
so on and so forth. That usually I, I often see it in religion. Um, here, where the producers have expressed their artistic vision, that you know clearly they're making some sort of political or social statement by having a diverse cast, or in some ways not a diverse cast. They just it's want actually not in some ways a diverse yeah, cast. They want yeah. people of color playing historic white figures. It's pretty hard to make that statement and then fill the roles with white actors. It dilutes the power of the statement and thus detracts from the artistic vision of the work. So I think it's I think it is quite um, reasonable for them to say we are going to cast this in a particular way. What if Lin Manuel Miranda's vision was to cast a show that had largely African-American or Hispanic figures. And he said, my artistic vision is to only have white people play these people that are non-white. Would that, would that fly? So he wanted to basically, so just to make sure I'm getting you right. Reverse it. Reverse it. He wants to make the color purple, but with white actors. With, with white actors. I'd say the same thing. It's it's the same artistic vision. Do you think that would fly socially? No. No. Not at all. Not even a little. Not even a little. Especially if they're in blackface. Especially that. Especially yeah. that. Assume that they're not. But Right. Okay. There's a difference socially that we both look at and say, yeah, I actually agree that one of those is probably a lot more okay than the other. Yes. Would the law care? I don't think so. I don't think so either. And I have, I'm really curious to see if this were ever litigated, how this would come out, because there's a difference between what I see as casting the color purple, as they said in, in here, right, and casting Hamilton, where in one of those you're casting people who actually reflect the race of the person who you're portraying, and the other you're, you're actually casting people who are the not the same race as the person they're portraying one of those feels more solidly bfoq land from a legal perspective than the other right as opposed to relying back on just artistic vision it's an interesting question for me legally yeah. socially morally i'm okay with this at mostly at all levels yeah but legally i'm struggling to get to bfoq here and I like what you said about it. Actually, that's gotten me thinking a little bit more about it. But it's a fascinating legal question. It is. And I'll tell you, I have seen that same sort of, maybe using different words, but that same sort of artistic vision defense used by commercial enterprises to explain why they're using race or sex as a BFOQ and they get smacked down. Yeah. Like, um, I forget what retailer it was and I didn't have a chance to research this since, you know, I didn't even know what we were talking about today. It's the fun <laughs> of the show, yeah, right? Yeah. But I remember there was a, a New York City retailer that was trying to maintain its young, hip image and thus put age as a BFOQ for its salespeople on the sales floor. 
like interesting. You need to be no older than twenty five. I think it was like you need to be between the ages of twenty and twenty five. You need to be young and good looking. And they got sued because you, you just sue over the job announcement. You don't even yeah, need you to don't show have to anything. Do anything. Yeah. And their defense was, we want to create a certain aesthetic on the sales floor. We aim our products at people ages 20 to 25. So to have you know some 50-year-old trying to sell those products is going to not work for our aesthetic and our sales model. And here's the thing. They, they lost. Yeah. I can kind of see a little bit of their point. I can I too. would struggle to sell clothing to a 20-year-old. No. Yeah. I be- you? Believe it or not. You know, I'm... You're the coolest guy I know. I am the coolest guy you know. <laughs> but I still don't think I'm probably the best person to be selling clothes to 20-year-olds. Probably not. Now, what what I could imagine is, and here's why I think they lose, is that I can imagine a circumstance where the qualification is not age. The qualification is attitude and ability to sell to 20-year-olds. Right. And if you're a 50-year-old and you can sell to 20-year-olds because you, you have the right attitude, yeah, right, you should not be kept from that job right? simply by virtue of your if age. If you're Bill Murray... And 20-year-olds think you're like a cool hipster icon. You're going to sell all kinds of stuff. Right. If you're me, you're going to sell jack squat. So what's the lesson there? So the lesson there is that you can often get what you're looking for in terms of abilities, aesthetics, whatever you want to call it, without being racist, ageist, and sexist about it. Exactly. It's rare, but it does happen. Where the BFOQ really is bona fide and an occupational qualification, like casting in a play. I can also think of like, you know, we need to do an episode on this um, industry at some future point. But if you're running a strip club. I was just going to say, that's one of the examples I always use. It's because we live in Portland, Oregon, which, as we all know, is the per capita strip club capital of North America. True story. Um, that actually is true. Yeah. If if you want to have dancers at a strip club, yeah, you could probably limit that to men need not apply. Yeah. Or, depending on the type of strip club, women need not apply. Exactly. You're going to get really interesting results from the trans crowd here in Oregon. True. What if you're a transgender woman applying for a job <laughs> oh, as a dancer at a strip club? That's actually a thorny, interesting, thorny, thorny, interesting, not horny, thorny, uh, legal issue. Yeah, nice try, Mark. I tried. Uh, I would, it, it's, it's, yeah, I, I don't know how that would shake out. But there's also places where I've seen this tried that utterly fail, too. And people have tried to claim that artistic vision. And the one that springs to mind is department store Santas. Oh. I've heard of cases where department stores won't allow anybody but white old men to be Santa. And they'll say stuff like, well, Santa's white. And you can say, like, well, he doesn't have to be. Who says Santa's white? 
that's just kind of a traditional thing, but we can break with tradition. Yeah. And there's plenty of black Santas out there. That's what I was just going to say. Or Hispanic Santas or yeah. whoever Santas. What about young you know? Santas? Young Santas. Does that, does that, is that different on age than race as a BFOQ? What about skinny versus fat? Well, at some level, if you're going to be stuffing pillows into the suit and wearing a fake beard, who cares, right? Who cares? You could have female Santas. Mm-hmm. If what you really want is a guy with a natural white beard, that's probably going to exclude people. But you could advertise like, hey, we want a Santa. We don't want like a fakey Santa. We want somebody yeah, we don't who's want the Santa who's going to get their beard pulled, pulled off, off or lit on fire. Lit on fire. <laughs> um, you know, we want natural Santas. But again, you wouldn't have to advertise for male, older, plump. You could just advertise for a natural looking Santa and it's people and are going to self-select. The applications will self-select. Yeah. Why why put those limitations in your ad and buy the lawsuit right up front? Yeah, there's there's no point. Don't do that. All right, I've got another one for you. Yeah. Okay. Lay it on us. All right. University who shall remain nameless on the podcast. Okay, has a hiring practice that I want to talk about. Okay. Let me read the job posting. Fire away. Blank University announces a tenure-track faculty position in computer science to begin in August 2018. We seek applicants with the ability to teach in a broad range of undergraduate computer science and information systems courses, giving priority to candidates with expertise in one or more of the following specializations, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, data structures and algorithms, and or data analytics. In addition, the successful candidate will be expected to engage in appropriate professional and scholarly activities, supervise internships, advise students, perform undergraduate research, and carry out other faculty responsibilities. So far, so good. So normal. Not concerned. This university, a Christ centered community, prepares oh. students spiritually, academically, and professionally to think with clarity, act with integrity, and serve with passion. Professors teach all truth as God's truth, integrating all fields of learning around the person and work of Jesus Christ, bringing the divine revelations through sense, reason, and intuition to, uh, to the confirming test of Scripture. As a Christ-centered community, this university is an institution that values diversity as an essential dimension of God's design for human communities. In seeking to become a more inclusive community, we especially encourage applications from women and candidates from racial and ethnic backgrounds that are underrepresented on our faculty. Now, let me read through. Most of these sound normal, but the very last qualification, which is required for the job, all applicants must express a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and expressed their Christian testimony in a local church. In addition, professors agree to live in agreement with the community lifestyle statement and affirm the theological commitments expressed in the statement of faith. Wow. This is a computer science position. Yep. At a university that is clearly religious-based. Right. They would claim... BFOQ. I imagine this is a BFOQ. Now, I will tell you that I scanned the rest of their postings, and they all say this. Yeah. I had a problem with that. I'm shocked. 
What say you, Dennis? Well, it's funny. And again, I wasn't expecting this question, but I recently, I, I recently analyzed this issue for the husband of a friend of mine. Interesting. And just to, you know, without naming names or naming colleges, I have a friend whose husband applied for a job as a psychology professor for a Christian college and made it all the way through the application process only to be told, sorry, but we're not going to offer you the job because you are not a Christ follower because he's Jewish. Yep. And he wanted to be a psychology professor. And I looked at that and my instinct was, well, let's take a look at the job description. Does the job description say that you're going to include the teachings of Christ in a psychology class? Is this like Christian psychology? Right. Just I had the same question. Or is question. it just like is psychology this, psychology? Is this Christian professor of computer science? Yeah. Are uh, yeah. It's totally unrelated to the role. And my thought was, if it's totally unrelated to the role, then it's not a BFOQ. And I think they're discriminating on the basis of religion. I agree. My friend's husband is suing that school. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. And mutual friends of ours are involved in that lawsuit. I'll tell you after we're done. Okay, I can't wait. Yeah. So, I have a big problem with that. I do. I do, too. What if the position was for a professor of religion? Then I think it's different, because you can look at the... You could look at the teaching, and here's where I, I, I sort of get down to it. I, I looked at, like, psychology professor... And the Jewish guy can't teach it? He's going to be teaching about Jewish guys. Sigmund Freud, still a Jew. <laughs> right, regardless. Right? That, 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 that just doesn't make sense. If what you were is a professor of Christian theology, that, and you're teaching more than just, here is the historical basis of this. I mean, I could imagine a person of any religious background or no religious background teaching the history of the Catholic Church. Sure. But if you want to hear the perspectives of somebody who is a Catholic and the instruction, the education includes more than just the communication of history, but also of belief and faith and all that jazz, then I can see that the actual adherence to the religion becomes a BFOQ. Yes, there's a line there. And it's a little bit fuzzy. It is a little bit fuzzy because yeah. I, I could be Jewish and I, uh, and I am, and I could go and get a degree in world religions. You could. And I could apply for a job to teach world religions at, uh, a, yeah. at a college level. Right. Right, non-theological in the class itself. There, I still have a problem. If if I'm if I'm kept from teaching because yeah. of that, as opposed to no, we want it, we want this to be like teaching Sunday school, right? This is right for the, actual this, religious this is, instruction yeah. in your religion, right? Specifically, right? And one of the one of the yeah. I didn't call this out because I knew I was going to tell the story, but one of the big BFOQ examples that I always use is like you know a We're, church doesn't need to. Right, like yeah. hire a Jewish person to be a, a priest, right? Or it a, makes giving right? communion like, really awkward. It makes it a little bit odd. Yeah. So that's the ultimate in BFOQ. 
Totally. That's like the perfect example. But for a teaching uni- computer science? Exactly. I think I think this is going to get in, smacked in, down at some point. In my friend's husband's case, what the college is saying is our mission is not only to impart instruction in psychology or computer science or what have you, but also to provide a Christian environment to our students. And in order to provide a Christian environment to our students, we need all of our faculty to be Christ followers. I get it. God forbid they get another perspective from somebody. <laughs> yeah, God forbid. We, we would right? want, you know. But I, I still don't think that that goes, I don't think that's good enough. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's dicey. I would not, right? I would it, not advise clients to go that direction. Yeah. Not so. that I'm giving legal advice because, you know, you heard the disclaimer at the opening of the show. But, you know, if if I was retained by a religious-based college to give advice, I'm not sure I'd go there. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. You know, it's funny. I used to, until a couple months ago, I worked for a Catholic healthcare system. Indeed. And I remember the first time I was at the hospital... And saw somebody in full Buddhist robe regalia. Really? Wearing one of our employee badges. And I did a double take because you don't see like the the sort of orange robe every day. No, but generally I, not. But, you know, it was a woman with her head shaved wearing Buddhist robes. And I was like, what's this? And I looked at her name badge and, you know, our badges all had our names on it and then right. our, had our job title. Guess her job title. Oh, I have no idea. I, I mean, I'm going to say like a chaplain or chaplain. something. Chaplain. Okay. And I was like, we have Buddhist chaplains? That's and so amazing. I went and I, I asked somebody, I was like, do we have Buddhist chaplains? Like, oh, yeah. We've got Catholics, Buddhists, Jews. We've got some Muslim chaplains. We've got atheist chaplains. That's awesome. It blew my mind. That's the right way to do it as a as a you know religion based organization. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, I, I think lo- this was a fascinating discussion. I'm glad you did. Uh, that's all I got. Well, cool. I think that was plenty because I I know we're long on time on this episode already so we should probably take us a a little bit of a break yeah i am curious if our listeners have interesting bfoq kinds of stories please send them they would be fascinating send them to stories at hwepodcast.com i do it do it now don't clearly this is this is an issue we've talked about it before we just devoted most of an episode to it and i don't think this is the last you're going to hear from it nope and we like talking about it. We do. It's so. awesome. All right. We'll be right back. So we have this Patreon campaign. I've heard, you heard of it. Of that? I have heard of it. And we've promised people that we would have Patreon only content. And we've totally not done that. Because we blow. But we're working on it. We are. Actually, we've fixed it. So we now have our very first Patreon-only content up, and we're going to keep that content rolling on at least a monthly basis. At least a monthly basis. And to get access to that content, you can provide 10 bucks or more a month. It's a totally worthy cause. Absolutely. www.patreon.com slash HWE. And you will get a, starting with this month, a short extra episode. Yep. 
of awesome listener stories and witty commentary. Absolutely. Mostly the awesomeness comes from you, the listener, not from us. But oh, we'll, God, no. We'll we, do our best. We are fully non-awesome, but our listeners are great. Yes. Check it so out. So anyway, check it out. Patreon.com slash HWE. Well, Mark, we spent some time talking about religion. Yes. And a couple weeks ago, we spent some time talking about funeral homes. Yes. And I think we even mentioned transgender folks. I think maybe we did. Well, I'm going to combine those three things. Uh, Okay. Religious, funeral home, transgender bias suit. Fascinating. So, this last week, the Sixth Circuit came out with a decision... Reviving a U.S. Equal Opportunity Employment Commission suit accusing a Michigan funeral home operator of violating federal anti-discrimination law by firing its funeral director after she said she would transition from male to female, holding that the company wasn't protected by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Yeah. So. RIFRA. 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 That's a great acronym. I like that. So here's um, basically what happened is this funeral home, as I just described, their funeral director wanted to transition from male to female. And they said, no, we're a religious-based funeral home and you don't get to do that. And Mm. our religious freedom trumps Title VII, Mm. which, you know, in many circuits prohibits discrimination based on... um, transgender status as an expression of sex yes so the funeral home said under rifra the religious freedom restoration act that applies strict scrutiny to any federal statute that impinges upon religious freedoms really and I, it was I don't passed hear... it was passed in order to allow native americans to continue to use peyote in religious ceremonies Peyote, for those of you who, you know, don't do stoner stuff or are Native American using it for religious purposes, is a cactus that grows in the American Southwest. And if you eat parts of it, it's a powerful hallucinogen. Um, Native Americans use it as um, so part of a religious practice. that's the purpose practice. for the law. That's the purpose for the law. And this funeral Does- home said... You need to apply strict scrutiny to Title VII. Where do they get strict scrutiny from? I mean, usually, it's so in the just, law. just oh, is it okay? Because usually, when we talk does. about strict scrutiny, we're talking about rights under the Constitution and the Fourteenth Amendment and equal yeah. protection and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to get into that today. That's a whole rabbit you hole. You a whole rabbit but hole. But strict scrutiny means basically what it says. You basically have to have the the best of all possible reasons before we're going to allow you to restrict somebody's religious freedoms. That sounds like a poor application of the law. Well, and that's what the Sixth Circuit agreed. I'm glad to hear that. They said, no, that's just dumb. (laughs) Good. In fact, that was a direct quote from the opinion. Nah, that's just dumb. Here's what they actually wrote. RIFRA provides the funeral home with no relief because continuing to employ the transgender funeral director would not, as a matter of law, substantially burden the owner's religious exercise. And even if it did, the EEOC has shown that enforcing Title VII here is the least restrictive means of furthering its compelling interest in combating and eradicating sex discrimination.
discrimination. So they overturned a lower court ruling that it actually held. That bought the argument. On that Riff bought Riff. the argument. So, Can you yeah. imagine if that became the law of the land? Well, it did. You ever hear of a little thing called Hobby Lobby? Uh, yes, I have. That's how that the RIFRA was one of the things that Hobby Lobby argued should exempt them from having to provide birth control to its employees because it would have impinged upon the religious freedoms of right. Hobby Lobby's owners. Right. So there you have it. So this could still see the light of day this, appeal to the Supreme Court. This could go to the Supremes. So how do you know offhand how they how the Sixth Circuit distinguished this from Hobby Lobby? What they did is they they did a balancing between the religious freedoms of the owner and whether or not they would even be impacted by having a transgender funeral director and held that they would not be. They basically said, yeah, there's nothing, you know, unless your religion condones bigotry, and I don't think you want to say that, um, your religion doesn't require you to have a non-trans funeral director. Indeed. So... There you have it. Fascinating. Yeah. I sh- I'm sure there will be more to, to come on that. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. But I bet you didn't think I could pull off transgender funeral homes and BFOQ, did you? Not even in my wildest dreams. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. Yeah, you're the man. All right, we'll be, be right back, back with a uh, listener story. Well, we've come to that very special time in the podcast where Mark will read to us a listener-submitted story. And I hear you've got a doozy. It's good. And it, it actually very nicely fits the theme of today's episode. There's a theme? Well, you'll see. Okay. All right. So, hi, Mark and Dennis. Oh, hi. Hello. (laughs) This is not the only good story I have from my years as a transgender woman in the tech industry, but it's probably the most egregious. Oh. It was 1999, and I was the IT girl. Now, it's it, and I've been reading A Wrinkle in Time, and it is the big bad in it, and so I keep having problems between it and IT. But this is IT, I believe she means, not the it girl, the IT girl, for a small public relations firm of about 30 people in Southern California. At the time, I identified as Jewish and volunteered as a lay leader for a local Jewish congregation. I was not super open about the fact that I was transgender, but it wasn't exactly a secret either. Also, I was living with a pre-transition transgender man, so to the world we looked like a same-gender female couple. One day, the company decided they wanted to hold a team-building event. Their event was planned for all-day Friday, camping overnight, and all-day Saturday. Part of the event included a mountain bike ride from the initial event location to the place where we were camping. As it happens, I was scheduled to lead services at the congregation, so I couldn't stay Friday night, and I couldn't stay Saturday because I didn't work on the Jewish Sabbath. I told my boss both of these things, and she said, well, stay for however much you can, and then you can leave. On the day of the event, the rest of my coworkers set out on the mountain bike ride. I drove to the second location so I could leave from there, and a coworker drove as well so she could move a trailer of equipment and supplies. She and I were sitting waiting for the mountain bikers to arrive, and she began pressuring me to stay for the whole event. After she'd brought it up multiple times, I asked her why she was so adamant that I should stay. You already have three strikes against you here because you're Jewish and queer and fat, she replied. Whoa! 
yeah. You really should try harder to fit in, and I'm not the only person who thinks so. As you can imagine, I was flabbergasted. A little bit. I left the event soon thereafter, but spent the weekend thinking about what she'd said and how not conducive to making me feel a part of the team it was. On Monday, I sat down with my boss and told her what happened. I just want to know this is not how the company feels and that I'm a part of this team. She reassured me that, of course, I was part of the team. The next day, I came into the office and my boss intercepted me on the way on the way to my desk. She told me that I was being placed on administrative leave, allegedly for failing to do something which I had neither the authority nor the budget to do, even though I'd been asking for months to do it. Three days later, I was told I could resign with four weeks severance pay or be terminated for cause. When I tried to protest that my firing was clearly retaliation for complaining about what my coworker had said, my boss said, yes, but we're a well-connected public relations firm. How badly do you want disgruntled transsexual Sue's respected PR company on the front page of the newspaper while you're looking for another job? Wow. This was early in my career, so I made a decision I've regretted. I signed the release of liability, took my severance pay, and walked away. In hindsight, I wish I'd talked to an attorney and pursued the issue, but I also know how much of a financial and emotional commitment litigation is, and I'm confident that they would have made it ugly. Wow. I'm sorry that that happened to you. That, That's yeah. terrible. I agree. And, you know, we we get a lot of stories here that are funny. Funny. Um, this was not. This, this is not a just, funny story. This was, but it is a valuable story, extraordinarily valuable story. And thank you for sharing it with us and our listeners. I think that is a very good perspective to us to remember why it is we do what we do, which is not exactly. just not just to defend employers, but really to help employers be better employers. Which right. that and employer certainly needed to be better. And I appreciate the sentiment in there about how you know maybe maybe this individual would have made a different choice today but i think it shows great wisdom to also acknowledge the financial and emotional cost that comes with filing litigation oh it's so true and even it, though i find it fun and exciting to go to trial most participants most litigants hate it of course they think it's terrible because it's expensive and it's emotional and it's it's about your life and it's putting yourself out there. Totally. And uh, being willing to put yourself out there in a way that will subject you to attack. and Because that's inevitably what's going to happen from the other side. Yeah. And so I, I admire uh, this individual for sending us this story, for putting it down on paper, so to speak. Yes, and, thank you. Um, I think it's uh, there's a valuable lesson in there for everybody. Yeah. And I feel privileged that you chose to share it with us. Thank yes, you. Yes. Thank you. If you have a story to set, to tell, um, send it to stories at hwepodcast.com. We need some more. We need some more. We're, We're always, always on looking the lookout. For more. Always looking for more. Um Dennis, if people want to throw a couple bucks our way because we're awesome and we make them happy. And if you'd like to offset the enormous financial burden of producing this podcast on a weekly basis, um, yes, go enormous. to... It's not that enormous, but it is substantial. It is, it is, it is significantly greater than zero. It's Yes, it is a non-zero amount. Um, you can become a patron and you can go to patreon.com slash hwe give an amount that you find appropriate 
And if you give 10 bucks or more a month, you will be on the list of people whose names we read. And should I we think do we it? Do it. Is it time? It's time. Is it time? You know who's first. I don't know. Who, oh, well, I mean, if we're going all the way back. Jason Gardner. Jason Gardner, the man. Followed by the person on the list with the best name, Heidi Pancake. Heidi Pancake. Jordan George, Ryan Vesey, Tammy Kravitz, Liz Large, and Colleen Coco. Yeah. Gotta say, Liz Large giving Heidi Pancake a run for the best name. <laughs> Indeed. Those are two good ones. Indeed. And... Don't we have one more? The king of all patrons. Yes. Sean McGuire. Sean McGuire. Awesome. We appreciate each and every one of you at the $10 level, at the $3 level, at the $7 level. At even, the $1 level. Even myself we at have, the $1 level. We have level. a single, single $1 patron. It's me. I'm not going to read his name. It's me. If you want your name read, you got to donate 10 bucks. No, I'm not saying my name. You're too cheap. I'm just saying it's me. Yeah. <laughs> if, um, if folks want to follow us on social media, Dennis, um, where can they do that? Well, there's Friendster. Yes, we've we've made that joke like three times already. Like, yeah, like um, it's it's <laughs> old and tired. Um, at HWE Podcast is how you find us on the Twitters on Twitter, and we're Hostile Work Environment Podcast on Facebook. Facebook. Um, that that's pretty much where you'll find us. We have, pretty much we, we're talking about an Instagram, maybe, but, but it's like we don't take a lot of pictures, so I'm kind of like, well, well what are at we? least not that are like podcasty pictures. Yeah, which they don't have to be, but we should well, we should think about that. We'll think about that. All right. Well, well thanks just, everybody. This may set a new record for, for the longest episode, but I think it was worth it. It was a good episode. Thanks, I really Mark. enjoyed this. Episode. I enjoyed this chat. Good. All right. We'll see, see y'all, y'all next later. week. Bye. <laughs> At lunch, I'm going to the same place Mike Snyder went to pick up my brand new fake ID. Chicka, chicka, yeah, fake ID, fake ID, outside.